Welcome back to the Flux Diet Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mike T. Nelson. On the podcast, we discuss different ways to increase lean body mass, muscle performance, and improve body composition via nutrition and training, and do it all in a flexible approach without destroying your health in the process. Today, we've got my buddy, Mike Mahler, on the podcast. And we're primarily talking about the effect of hormones and what should you do. This one is a little bit more geared toward guys, but obviously there'll be good information all around. And if you want more information about fitness and nutrition in general, you can check out my newsletter, Fitness Insider. Go to MikeTNelson.com and there'll be different opt-ins there you can click on and it'll take you directly to the newsletter, which is completely free. And we've got all sorts of great information that goes directly to your email. And of course, we don't sell your address or give you to crazy spammers or anything like that. So go to MikeTNelson.com and sign up today. As I mentioned, Mike Mahler's on the podcast today. We talked a little bit about hormone optimization, If you're a guy, should you just be looking at only testosterone? The answer is no. Uh, What other measurements should you be looking at? How do they all play together? What is the role of lifestyle? And then of course we talk about training, the purpose and point of recreation, and of course a little bit about music towards the end since Mike listens to awesome music also. And yeah, it was just a really fun conversation. Be sure to check out all of his information. We'll put links to it below here in the podcast. And enjoy this conversation with Mike Muller. The basic question is, why should people care about hormones? And then what are the starting points? Because I think especially now with, man, like... You hit a few wrong buttons on the internet and I get blasted with TRT ads like nonstop yeah. from, yeah. man, I don't know, but they look like some pretty questionable sites. <laughs> yeah. Any place that's a TRT clinic is already questionable because guess what? They only do one thing, TRT. Yeah, TRT. <laughs> Hormone optimization is a lot more than testosterone and you shouldn't even get on TRT without knowing your testosterone levels, of course, but also all the precursor hormones such as pregnenolone. DHEA, and also estrogen. You want to know all those things because most of the time, if you replace testosterone, you also have to replace pregnenolone and DHEA because just replacing testosterone will downregulate those hormones. And pregnenolone is the most important hormone for neural health, for memory and focus. DHEA is the ultimate stress management hormone. So the last thing you want to do is deplete that. And then estrogen, if it's too high or low, that's problematic as well. If it's too low, you have no sex drive and no sex function, zero. doesn't matter how high your testosterone is if your estrogen is too low. Now, this is not a problem most men have. Most men have the opposite problem. Their estrogen levels are too high. And that has similar side effects. Again, you're going to have poor sex function and you're going to be really moody and you're going to have a hard time just being driven to get anything done. So it's a delicate balance. And that's why just overly fixating on one thing is problematic. Men tend to focus on 
testosterone. How do I improve my testosterone levels? What are my testosterone levels? And testosterone is absolutely important, but it's one of many hormones that are important. And we could argue that it's not as important as master control hormones, such as insulin, leptin, growth hormone, melatonin. These are hormones that have a myriad of effects across the board. So we could argue that you should focus on those more because if you optimize insulin, leptin, melatonin, and growth hormone, pretty much everything else is going to fall into place. You're going to improve your testosterone and other hormones by default. But the reason, the main reason why people should care about hormones is you have to look at what hormones are. Hormones are biochemical messengers that induce actions. So if you feel really driven, it's predicated on your hormonal profile. If you're very depressed, there's a hormonal reason for that as well. And all we have to do is look at anyone who's ever been around a woman who has really bad PMS symptoms. We know all too well how devastating the hormonal impact can be. And there's nothing more irritating than telling a woman who's dealing with serious PMS symptoms to, it's all in your head, just get over it. She is programmed to feel the way she's feeling at that moment, and there isn't anything you can do about it. No, no amount of meditation is going to help. Your programs, or your hormones rather, are programming you to feel a certain way, and it's going to be impossible to feel otherwise. So if you have really low testosterone levels as a man, it's impossible for you to feel confident and have a high sex drive and feel driven. It is impossible. You can lie to yourself all day long. You can look in the mirror and give yourself affirmations until per, into perpetuity. It's going to be to no avail. But on the flip side, once you optimize your hormones, then all of those other things fall into place. Now you're naturally driven. You wake up. You can't wait to get your day started. You can't wait to pursue your goals. You can't wait to go to the gym and crush it with training. You can't wait to do anything that's going to further your growth and progress. So basically, essentially, we are our hormones. If you have a poor hormonal profile, it will have a negative impact on your life, assuming it's not already, and it's only going to get worse as you get older. And on the flip side, if you take the time to optimize your hormonal profile, I'm not going to say you're going to live forever or that you're not going to age at all, but you're going to age much better. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, and especially you mentioned about like testosterone being the main hormone, it feels because testing is becoming so much more accessible now, obviously through a physician, some states without a physician, it feels like that's for dudes, that's like the new bench press number. So what's yeah. your testosterone <laughs> number? And it's like yeah, higher, yeah. the better, yeah, yeah. but it's that's a great analogy. Yeah. As you pointed out, it, it's not like this simple linear scale either. If you're low and hypogonadal, yeah, you're definitely going to see some issues. If using exogenous substance and you're in the supra physiologic range. Yes, that's right. going to be beneficial, comes with some cost. But what are your thoughts about this goal to try to optimize testosterone at all costs? Because I get emails, you probably get way more than I do of, yeah. oh man, my testosterone on the US scale is like 480. And my brother, the guy down the street is 730. I should right. be a lot higher, but they don't have symptoms. You go through the list, right. you're like, no, that's good. And you're like, I don't know, I'm not a physician, but I'm probably not that super worried about it, maybe. <laughs> Symptoms are the most important thing. So that's a salient point you just brought up. Also, total testosterone is irrelevant. You don't even have to bother getting that tested. The only number that matters is free testosterone. That's what you have access to. Total testosterone is like having a bank account with a million dollars in it, but you only have access to 10% of it. So in essence, you only have $100,000. The other 900000 you don't have access to. So you, it might as well not even exist. So total testosterone doesn't matter. I had a guy send me his blood work recently and his total testosterone was 480. 
And it's not a bad number. It's not a great number. But he and he was devastated by that number. He goes, man, my levels have never been this low. But here's the thing. His free testosterone was 105 on a scale of 55 to 155. So that's actually a really good number. My total testosterone is 730. My free testosterone is 105. His total testosterone is 480. His free testosterone is 105. So in essence, we both have the same exact testosterone levels, the only ones that matter. Now, don't get me wrong. It's nice for me to see a high number of total when I look at my blood work. It gives you a little ego boost, like the bench press analogy you said. But the reality is if I had high total and low free, it's to no avail. It doesn't even matter. But this guy had not low total, but not optimal. So if we only tested the total, he would probably draw some erroneous conclusions. But because he got free testosterone tested, we knew that he's fine. And his symptoms were fine too. It's not as if he were experiencing low sex drive and low sex function and all that. His estrogen levels were a little bit too low. They were 18 estradiol. You wanna be around, let's say 25 to 35 on the scale. And he was about 18. So it's not, I would say 20 is the bottom of what you want your estradiol levels to be. You're probably better off a little bit higher than that. 18 is almost within the good range, but if he actually elevated it a little bit higher, I think he would actually feel better. But again, it's based on symptomology. If he's not feeling anything I'm talking about, then no big thing. So I think we tend to be really pedantic with blood work, especially men. Men are always about numbers. What's my income? Yes. And if a Simple man has numbers. A really, yeah, if a man has a really good income, he can't wait for someone to ask what his income is. Or if he's really proud of what he does for a living, let's say he's a physician or a lawyer, or anything that people hold with high esteem, he can't wait for someone to ask that. Just like when people start working out, they overly, just like we all did. You, I'm sure you and I did the same thing when we were teenagers. All I did was bench press and curls for yeah. the first five years. <laughs> I could, and once I started getting some decent numbers, I couldn't wait for someone to ask me what my bench is. Now if someone asks me what my bench is, I just say I don't bench. Because the easy thing to say is talk about what you used to do. I hate yeah. the, I don't like when anyone talks about what they used to be able to do. If you can't do it now, who cares what you used to be able to do? So not as if I get asked, what can I bench press so much these days? But if someone does ask, I'm like, oh, I don't bench press. And that's even more shocking of a response. Than talking what? about bench What's press. wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So if your free testosterone was on the lower side, and obviously there's a whole bunch of things that could implicate that, but would you yeah. be looking at like sex hormone binding globulin, what other yeah. markers would you be looking at? Assuming their testosterone is within a semi-normal range. Yeah. Well, sex hormone binding globulin is an interesting compound because it's often framed as something negative. But what sex hormone binding globulin is, it attaches itself to testosterone and it's a transport hormone. It actually takes it to places to be utilized. So what you don't want your sex hormone binding globulin to be too low because you want it to be able to be transported to areas for benefit. You don't want it to be too high either, because then it's basically deactivated. Now, just because someone has low free testosterone doesn't mean they have high sex hormone binding globulin. I've seen people with perfectly normal sex hormone binding globulin in the middle of the range, and they still have low free testosterone. So it's not always predicated on sex hormone binding globulin, but it is worth noting what that number is, because often it can be related to that. Then you would take things such as nettle roots. I actually have a testosterone booster. I'm going to plug my product a little bit because yeah, yeah. one, I'm proud of it because it actually works. I think it's a great product. Obviously I'm biased. I'm the one I sell it, but I designed a really good testosterone booster called aggressive strength. 
And it has four ingredients that are really good for optimizing testosterone. The number one ingredient is a South African herb called bulbine natalensis. That's the cornerstone ingredient. That increases both total and free testosterone. But one of the other ingredients, nettle root, stinging nettle root, that helps unbind testosterone from sex hormone binding globulin. And not just testosterone, but DHT. It helps unbind DHT from sex hormone binding globulin. And DHT is even more important than testosterone for all the things that we associate with testosterone. That alpha male feeling, that drive, that confidence, and sex drive in particular, DHT is way more powerful than testosterone is. So what we don't want though, is just a lot of DHT circulating in the bloodstream because that can cause some problems. What we want is high levels of free testosterone because according to Dr. Mark Gordon, free testosterone can, can penetrate the blood brain barrier and then get converted into DHT. And that way we get all the benefits of DHT without the negatives. Because if you have too much DHT, it can cause some inflammation in the prostate. It can start, you can start having prostate issues. But that's not really something that is that common, honestly. But that is, that's basically the prostate makes its own levels of DHT, just like the testicles make its own make its own cholesterol levels as well. So sometimes people argue, hey, if your cholesterol levels are too low, that has a negative impact on testosterone. The cholesterol circulating through your bloodstream has nothing to do with the cholesterol that's actually in your testicles. Your testicles make its own or cholesterol. And then cholesterol is converted into sex hormones, pregnenolone, DHEA, testosterone. Oh, but the other thing with free testosterone, I was, I was, before I always go off on tangents, but the other thing with free testosterone is if you actually have too much fiber in your diet, that can actually lower your free testosterone levels. That's why sometimes people such as vegans like myself, we eat a lot of fiber. And sometimes I see vegans blood work where their total testosterone is really good, but sometimes their free testosterone is on the low side. And when I profile their diet, it's always because they're taking in super large amounts of fiber. So what I always say is don't worry about the fiber that comes with the whole food. Just avoid adding fiber sources to it. Skip the flax seeds and things like that. Some people add ground flax seeds, which do have some benefits. But if you're already taking in a lot of fiber, don't add sources of straight fiber to your diet. What is the mechanism on that? Is it binding it somehow or some sort of feedback loop where more fiber tends to affect it? I think it increases sex hormone binding globulin. So the more ah, okay. you have in your diet, the more sex hormone binding globulin you have. And again, sex hormone binding globulin is not a bad thing. Just like there's no hormone that's good or bad. Like when people yeah. talk about it, a lot of men, a lot of men feel that they want to get testosterone as high as possible and get estrogen as low as possible. And that couldn't be further from the truth. You don't want testosterone as high as possible. You want it at the optimal number, whatever that is for you. So the optimal number for you is going to be different than me. And it's going to be different to the next five people we see on the street. So that's why you never really, that's why I don't compare myself to other people. I could say, yeah, my total testosterone is 700. And then you could be like, man, mine's 980. And then all of a sudden I'm like, man, this is 980. <laughs> I thought I had a good number, but maybe you need 980 to feel great. And I only need 700 to feel great. Someone else may only need 480 to feel great. So we don't want to get overly fixated on those things either. Yeah, because I've had mine tested a whole bunch of times and mine's never been above 500. They have free testosterone. Everything else has generally been pretty good. Yeah. haven't had any symptoms. The only time for a period where it was horrible was when I was back doing my PhD. Yeah. And I think the lowest... I ever had it tested was 202, I think. Oh, wow. But completely self-induced. I'm taking caffeine power naps in the back of my car at freaking nine <laughs> in the morning, sleeping five hours a night, running around like a crazy person, stressed out of my mind for five to seven years. So it was 
I didn't do anything about it per se at that point because I knew it was all 100% lifestyle related. And it, it took about a year and a half to resolve some of that stress. And then when I did, everything went back to normal again. You know what's uh, interesting though is that yeah. would have been a, that would have been a good time for you to do a TRT experiment just for that period, just during your whole PhD thing, because the TRT is going to get it into an optimal range, irrespective of what's going on in your life. You could have no sleep, you could have stress, you'd be going through a divorce, you could have financial stress. But if you're getting testosterone cream or a shot, it's going to take it to a range and keep it there regardless. So there are times where I feel that TRT can be useful. I'm not saying that everyone who's doing a PhD program should get it. Yeah. But I'm saying that if you are if you could have kept your testosterone at five or 600 along with other hormones at optimal levels, it would have facilitated that whole process. It would have been, you would have had an easier time in schools where I'm going. So sometimes people go through serious loss, death of a loved one, and they're in this understandably very depressed state. And I actually don't think it's a bad idea for someone in that state to get on some kind of hormone replacement, DHEA, pregnenolone, and testosterone, just temporarily, just for a couple of months to get you through that difficult phase and then get off of it. Because the thing about hormones also is sometimes people feel once you start taking hormones, you have to do it for the rest of your life. And that's not true either. You could do an experiment. Like, look, both of us could decide to get on TRT after this episode and say, let's do TRT for three, six months and see how we feel on it. And then we decide, you know what? I don't want to be on this for the rest of my life. No big thing. There's protocols you can put in place to rejuvenate your own levels. Things such as Clomid or MyT Booster or HCG gets your levels right back where they were before you were on TRT. And now you go on with your life. So that just because someone tries something doesn't mean that you're stuck on that path for the rest of your life. And not every form of hormone replacement shuts down natural production. For example, DHEA. If I take DHEA cream, now, if I stop taking DHEA cream, it's not as if my DHEA goes to zero. It just goes right back to where it was before I started taking the cream. I've done this several times on testing. So not every, not every hormone shuts down natural production. Taking melatonin, for example, doesn't shut down natural production of melatonin. Taking pregnenolone doesn't shut down natural production of pregnenolone. On the other hand, taking growth hormone definitely shuts down natural hmm. production. Like Dr. Gordon says, you take one shot, you've already shut down your production just from one shot for several days or longer. Testosterone will shut down your own production over time. But what you could do is someone who's on TRT, they can run a fertility drug called Clomid at the same time, or they could run my testosterone booster at the same time, or they could run HCG at the same time. And not only will that keep your natural production going, it will enable you to take much less of a TRT dosage. Because the lowest TRT, TRT dosage is what you should be after. And the problem with these TRT clinics is they put everybody on the same dosage. So you and I could both go in there and have different levels, and they'll put us on 100 milligrams a week of a testosterone shot. Every single person who comes through there, they're basically going to get that. But if you can keep your natural testosterone levels as high as possible, then you need a much smaller dosage of replacement to get you into a healthier range or to a range that you feel fantastic. Yeah. And, and in full disclosure, that's what I ended up doing through a doc. I spent oh, about okay. eight months trying to do it on my own. And man, I just thought, okay, once I'm done, that's ah, great. I'll be able to sleep. Dude, I was sleeping 11 to 12 hours a night for months on yeah. end. And yeah. that was just to be upright and get through the day. Yeah. And so long story short, went in, had a bunch of stuff checked and we ended up doing a bunch of gut stuff. And then I did do DHEA and pregnenolone. I just wanted to start with those for the reasons you mentioned, because yeah. there doesn't appear to be as much negative feedback loops on them. 
Yeah. And over time, it took probably a year and a half. And I was on it for four months. Hard to say if it helped or not, but the trajectory, everything was moving in the right direction. And the thing that was interesting, now I look back on it, I think it was a combination of stress. I think some of those hormones did help. But the thing that I missed was my aerobic system had completely degraded to absolute dog crap. It wasn't until I started training that everything got back to a more normal level again, too. So again, probably like you're saying, right? it could be a combination of many different things. And I like the advice of, for me, I just wanted to start with something that I knew probably had the least negative effects. Let's see what we can get from that. At some point, I don't use TRT right now. I'm not against it, but I just see too many people going in. They just test your testosterone. They're like, oh, you're low or borderline low. Yeah. And they just replace testosterone. And what you're saying, which I agree with, is it could be a whole bunch of things. It could be there's several other cascades. It could be, yeah. I know Mark Gordon's talked about this too. It could be you've got a history of concussions. Right. Concussions are well known to potentially shut down that that whole axis too. Absolutely. That could be a big one. That would be the first thing I ask someone is, have you ever yeah. been in a car accident or did you play football in high school? Do you do martial arts? Do you do anything where there's impact? Do you go snowboarding? I've gone snowboarding since I was 14. I've definitely yeah. had many wipeouts in the yep. ice. None of us <laughs> Me wore too. back then. I go <laughs> no. skateboarding now and because I come from the old school. When I go skateboarding now at almost 50, I still don't wear a helmet. And I'm not saying this is a smart thing to do. It's just that we didn't grow up with that. We rode our bikes all over the place. We crashed. We didn't have helmets on. Same thing with skateboarders. None of us wore helmets back then. And snowboarding, when I was snowboarding, no one had a helmet on. Now, if you go to no. a skateboard, everybody has a helmet on, but none of us had helmets on. And we all crashed. We all had impacts. I, re I remember hitting my head against the ice many times over the course of many years. Yeah, so those are the kind of things I would ask as well. But see, the thing is that th there's a twofold problem. On one hand, physicians are overworked. So they're looking for the quickest route they can give you to get you out the door. They might have 15 minutes with you. So they're looking at these numbers going, okay, what's the fastest, most expedient way for me to improve these numbers? Get them on a medication or get them on some kind of hormone replacement. And then people always say, oh, doctors just, all they do is prescribe drugs. Okay, you can make an argument for that, but it's also what people want because people oh, don't 100%. want lifestyle changes. Someone goes to a doctor and he has super high cholesterol. He doesn't want to hear, hey, cut out the bacon and stop eating pancakes every morning. He wants to hear what drug can I take so I can still continue to do what I enjoy doing. So it's a twofold problem. It's one, it's easier for doctors just to give out medications, including hormone replacement. But two, it's what a lot of patients want as well. A lot of I, I know guys in their late 20s, early 30s who are trying to get on TRT. Yeah. I go, Why do you need TRT at that age? And it's not even so much that they need it. It's just that they don't want to change anything in their lifestyle. So I look, I, I don't want to stop going out till three in the morning at the clubs. I don't want to stop drinking alcohol. I don't want to stop just taking energy drinks all day long and burning myself out. I don't want to stop going to In-N-Out and Burger. I'd, ra I'd rather just take TRT shots and then I can just continue doing what I'm doing. But you're not going to get the full benefits of hormone replacement if you're on this crappy diet, if you have mineral depletions or imbalances, and you're not sleeping well. <clears throat> no, nothing will replace the benefits of sleep. There's no hormone you can take that's going to restore back the benefits that you get from sleep. It's just not going to happen. Yeah, the sleep thing is interesting. I've done heart rate variability analysis on, oh God, probably thousands of people at this point over coming up on 11 years. And I've got a little intake form on the bottom where it's just a self-report. They report energy, sleep, diet, nutrition. 
And you do enough work with people, you'll find like complete outliers. Like I worked with two of the top collegiate female runners many years ago, and I got their diet logs and I thought their coach was trying to prank me. I'm like, there's no way these people are reading this. They're like, yep. And they ran very fast. Again, who knows about health and longevity, et cetera, things. So you do enough stuff, you'll find complete outliers. But the one thing I haven't found with the exception of one person who I think was a genetic mutant, like literally a duck to mutant was sleep. Like I haven't found hardly any people where when they got a chance to get more sleep, they did better. Now you'll find people who report that, oh man, I'm okay on six hours, but yeah. you do any amount of testing on them and that completely falls apart. Yeah. My buddies who are sleep researchers would often joke that they bring them into the lab. They have them do a dark Finish. room and do a boring task. And he's like, yeah, they all fall asleep within 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I agree with sleep and it's hard because the whole society appears to be pushing people just to be busier, do more. Don't worry about the acute cost. Like whatever you need to do now to get things done appears to be more society is pushing people. Like the amount of students I know now who are using Adderall and all sorts people, of stuff is crazy. People wear it as a badge of honor too. You have someone like Jocko, who I like Jocko, but Jocko's like, yeah, I only sleep four hours. He always takes a picture of his hairy arm yeah. at three in the morning. And it's Newton. like- He's a badass dude. Guys, be quiet. He's a badass <laughs> dude, but he looks worn out. Let's be honest. He's got deep wrinkles everywhere. He looks worn out. And it's not a large part of that is because he's a, he works his ass off. He pushes him really hard on multiple fronts and he doesn't sleep at all. The harder you work, the more sleep you actually need. Hold on a second. Yeah, no worries. <laughs> they just want to be on camera. Yeah, exactly. Raina is the only time you ever bark is what when I'm doing a show. And then of course the <laughs> person has to come and drop off stuff right in the middle. Oh, that always happens. They have to ring the doorbell. They have to keep ringing it to make sure that you actually heard it. Of course. Yeah, sleeping is, I think everyone tries to, people always want to cut out. People will always reduce sleep before they do anything else. They don't want to cut back on four hours of Netflix. They don't want to cut back on wasting eight hours on your phone. They don't want to cut back on garbage food but they will deprive themselves of sleep thinking that's not that important. So, oh, you'll sleep when you're dead. We hear that stupid stuff like that all the time. So you're going to be dead a lot sooner. If you're, you're going to get to that phase a lot sooner. I guarantee if we look at people that are making over a hundred years old, like some of the common things they did to get to that point, I guarantee you that sleep quality is one of those things. It may not be eight hours every night, but I guarantee you it's not less than six hours. And the quality is probably really good because six hours of quality sleep is more important than eight hours where you're just tossing and turning. It's funny because UFC Matt Brown, I put up a post recently on Instagram talking about how a lot of these biohackers are quacks. And you can tell that someone's a biohacker when they they overemphasize the benefits of saunas and red light therapy. two common red flags. And I'm not saying that either one are useful. I'm just saying that the benefits that are often associated are extremely exaggerated to say the least. Sauna, for example, has some health benefits, but I think one of the main benefits of a sauna is it just helps you relax. If it's something you enjoy doing, that's good enough reason to do it. And if it's something that helps you relax, that's going to improve your quality of sleep. And that's where the real benefits lie. And when people talk about, oh, yeah, I use a sauna to detox. Toxins aren't excreted through your skin. Could you imagine if we had a bunch of toxins coming through our skin? You'd have to wipe it off immediately. Otherwise, you would be in trouble. Our liver is what detoxifies toxins. That's what gets rid of toxins. You want to make your liver as healthy as possible. 
not use a sauna to induce sweating to detox. So saunas, and then the notion of, oh, sauna increases testosterone, it increases growth hormone. Even if it does either one of those things, how long does it last? It doesn't last long enough to be useful. Just like when people talk about it, here's a workout you should do to increase growth hormone and testosterone. Okay, that's great. You got this nice little increase in both, but it's not going to last longer than an hour. And that's not long enough to have any real benefit. It doesn't mean, what it is though, is a sign of a good workout. Because if you work out hard, instead of cortisol going through the roof, your testosterone and growth hormone went up. So you're leaving a workout with increased testosterone and growth hormone. That's a good thing. That's a really good thing in and of itself. It's not useful beyond that, though, because it doesn't last long enough to be useful. But and then and same thing with red light therapy. People tip, oh, put red light therapy on your testicles and that'll increase <laughs> your testosterone. Number one, no, it won't. And number two, don't you feel silly putting red light on your testicles? Okay, let's start there. Don't you feel stupid doing that? And the reason why you feel stupid is because it doesn't work. And I see so many people in our industry that are very well respected that propagate this nonsense. And that's what it is. It's nonsense. Buying these red light panels, which often cost $1,000 with the illusion that you're going to increase your growth hormone and testosterone, that should not be the reason why you buy it. Now, there may be some other benefits, such maybe it improves workout recovery a little bit. Who knows? Maybe it improves skin elasticity. Who knows? But we don't know for sure if it does any of those things. Maybe you do it and you just find it relaxing. Like you lie in front of a red light panel and you find it relaxing. It helps you doze off. You get into a relaxed state. If that's the case, that's a good enough reason to use it. That it helps you relax and unwind, whether it's a sauna or red light therapy or a cold plunging, whatever it is. That's a good enough reason if it's something you enjoy and it actually makes you feel better. But let's not add all these unnecessary possible benefits to it, which are totally outlandish and have never been substantiated. Yeah, I tend to agree. The basic stuff we know works, right? The basic yeah. things are going to have, like, by far and away, the biggest effect size. And I have a whole course where I do use sauna. But again, it's for a specific purpose. Once your exercise is good, once your nutrition is good, and once your sleep is decent, it's something you can consider adding on to the top. Again, the effect size a lot smaller. And if you've ever looked, I'm sure you've read the studies that they did on the growth hormone release with the sauna. It's a freaking brutal protocol in the sauna. Multiple, I think it was like two or three times you had to go out, come back in. Yeah. It was a really high temperature. It was very short-term studies. Granted, there's eight studies from Finland that that have shown that. But like you said, if you look at then what is the effect of it, right? So people think, oh, it's going to be increasing muscle mass, increased fat loss. Dr. Dan West from Stu Phillips lab did the classic study on that, looking at responses to exercise. Long story short, they exercised their right arm under a high anabolic condition from exercise. Their left arm, they did it. No difference in size, no difference in strength between one arm versus the other arm. So yes, you do see these big spikes, but they're super short-lived and it comes back down to baseline right away and they don't tend to do anything and yeah same with the red light i have one one here i like it i bought it as more of an experiment just to see what the effects were i think it's useful but the effects i would say are relatively small if i were to gauge it yeah single digits and what i've noticed in the summer when i'm outside more because i live in the friggin arctic in minnesota yeah i don't see the benefit seems to disappear so again maybe it's something i can probably get from sunlight in the summer I don't use it that much in the winter. Yeah, I use it a little bit more, but again, I'm not putting it on my nutsack because I read a single rat study, assuming that this is going to fix all my ails either. <laughs> yeah. I always look at it this way. What is, what are the things that provide the most bang for your buck? Whether it's working out, whether it's your business, whether it's 
improving your hormonal profile. And when it comes to your overall health, you're not going to beat a high quality diet and lots of daily activity, as well as restoration, which includes deep quality sleep. If you do those three things, that's going to have a big impact on everything else, while a lot of these other things are not going to have a big impact on those three things. So I think the mistake a lot of people make in our industry is because we work out intensely, we think we don't have to do anything else. We can just sit around in between workouts. And my attitude is you're not going to get the full benefits of daily activity from doing that. So I work out intensely with weights four times a week, but I walk my dogs two hours a day, seven days a week. And I find that just the walking two hours a day, so it's well over 10,000 steps every single day without fail. I actually have to make sure I eat enough each day. Otherwise, I start losing too much weight. Yeah. So I think sometimes we complicate these things. If the average person doesn't need to hire a trainer or even join a gym if they, to get started, all they need to do is go for a walk every single day. Maybe you start with 30 minutes. Maybe that's all you can do. You work up to an hour. Get it up to two hours, seven days a week, and I promise you it will have a huge impact, not just on your physique composition, but your mood, your overall health, your insulin sensitivity is going to improve, your blood pressure is going to improve, and then you clean up your diet. In the diet, you don't have to be overly pedantic either. Focus on real food. When in doubt, focus on real food. Avoid all the processed stuff, regardless of what your dietary preference is, whether you're a meat eater or a vegan. Focus on real food, the highest quality you can afford. And then make sure that you dial in sleep, do relaxation strategies such as meditation, have a hot shower in the evening, go for a short walk, whatever it is to help clear up the cobwebs in your mind so that, or the noise in your mind rather, so that you go into, when you get in bed, you're basically in this relaxed state and you can fall asleep quickly. Yeah, I think it's nice to see walking is becoming quote unquote more popular. And yeah. again, I'm yeah. biased because I'm helping with the book on it, but yeah. I remember John Berardi saying this years ago. He's you see a lot of people what they post on Instagram and what they're doing for fitness. And if you look oh. at their daily activity level, nothing huge right. spike. Nothing. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's better than not training, but you'd still need like low level movement during the day. That's just how the human body is designed. And I've just noticed minimum of five to eight thousand steps per day makes a huge difference. And obviously you can go above that, but for a lot of people, when I Years ago, I started sticking pedometers on people before watches would measure it. And I did it on myself. And it was, you weigh, it's just like vegetables, right? You way overestimate how much movement you get during the day without at least some self-calibration to see where you're at. Right. I thought my steps would have been easily 4,000 a day. And unfortunately, they were barely 3,000 when I was working <laughs> at home. And so then you realize, oh, maybe I should get up in the morning and go for an actual walk. Right. Uh, oh, I feel better. Oh, maybe I should have a walk in the evening. Oh, I feel better. And like you said, oh, my sleep is better. My recovery is better. Training's better. Oh, okay. So it is worthwhile. Go figure. You'll appreciate this example. Howard Jones, lead singer of Kill Switch Engage, or used to be the Love lead Howard. singer of Kill Switch Engage, one of the best vocalists out there. He has his own band, Light the Torch. That's awesome. Yes. He has a bunch of other projects. But Howard Jones used to be fairly overweight. He wasn't super <clears throat> obese, but he was a pretty hefty guy. And then all of a sudden, Light the Torch came out with a new video. And who's this new lead singer for Light the Torch? It was Howard Jones. He was just lost a ton of weight. Now, I remember listening to an episode of him on the Josta show. And there was, he was asking him about, so when, what kind of training regimen are you on now? What's your diet like? He goes, I didn't change my diet at all. I just started walking several hours a day. That's all he does. Every day he walks, but he walks a lot. We're talking three, four hours every single day. He just loves walking. And he's a guy who deals with lifelong depression. And he found it worked yeah. really well for 
his mental health. But that's all he does is walking. He didn't do any, he didn't do CrossFit or any kind of specialized weight training regimen. He didn't hire an expensive trainer or start doing high intensity interval training five times a week. No, he just went for long walks every single day and that weight came right off. I think people underestimate walking, but the thing is you have to do a lot more than let's say 20, 30 minutes. That's nothing. Yeah. The 20, 30 minutes, that, that's a good start, but you're not going to notice any physique composition benefits unless you're really obese, just doing 30 minutes a day. But you start doing two hours a day. I noticed all of a sudden the abs started popping out more and I wasn't changing my diet at all. If anything, I'm eating more because of the activity, the daily activity level is so much higher. And that's the other thing too, is that I used to come from that mantra of you can't outrun a donut and diet is more important than training when it comes to physique composition. I used to repeat that mantra just like everybody else, but I have a much different take on it now. I feel that if you take your daily activity to a very high degree, two hours of walking or two hours of whatever, playing tennis or playing basketball, skateboarding, playing with your dogs, playing with your kids, but you're doing hours of activity every single day. I think you can actually loosen up your diet quite a bit without any negative. I'm not saying that you should just eat junk food and eat whatever you want. I'm just saying you, you, want, you don't have to be as pedantic with your nutrition when your activity level is at a really high degree. Yeah, I noticed that we usually go down to South Padre every spring and fall and go kiteboarding. And if it's nice that I'll go ride for three hours in a row yeah. and it's not that difficult, but it's an energy output and you have to pay attention and everything else. And people always laugh. They're like, you're the nutrition guy. You're drinking a beer, eating Pop-Tarts <laughs> after kiteboarding. I'm like, dude, I just rode like three hours. Like I'm going to go have a normal meal after I had a normal-ish meal before. I don't worry about it. And I come back home and I usually lose two to yeah. four pounds. And then training is not any different. If anything else, I'm doing less weight training than normally what I do at home. But I go for a walk on the beach in the morning, do a short run. It's just my activity level is just so much higher than it, it generally is at home. And shocker, physics still works. <laughs> yeah, when I go on vacation, I don't even never use the gym at the hotel. I don't care about weight training. I don't bring stuff with me, such as resistance bands and all that. I would only be concerned about that if it's maybe a vacation longer than a month. But if it's, let's say, two weeks or so, just be active each day. Go surfing, go hiking, go exploring, go have a good time relax, get as much sleep in, take a nap. Your body will be totally rejuvenated and you'll get so much more out of your training when you get home. I know people that are so addicted to training that they can't go, they can't even go for a weekend getaway without using the hotel gym or bringing some equipment with them. I go relax. And you hear all this idiotic advice, such as I haven't missed a workout in 20 years. Number yeah. one, I believe that. <laughs> Number two, that you're missing out because I'm telling you, Take a week off from training here every now and then. That has dramatic benefits for training, for your progress. I think that's why it's good. I've always been someone who focused on performance. I don't, I've don't. i never done bodybuilding type training. I've never been overly fixated on physique composition. What my body looks like is a side effect of training for performance. So whether it's more reps, more weight, better endurance, it's some barometer of performance that I'm always looking at. And I think as a result of that, you're more honest with yourself. You're not addicted to the stimulus of working out if it's not serving you is where I'm going. So if I'm pushing myself hard and I'm getting weaker, I'm not going to just keep going. I'm going to realize, okay, there's something wrong here. I need to refocus, recalibrate. So I get back on that performance. So I think if when you're someone who just works out for the sake of working out, you just want the stimulus of working out, that can be to your own demise because now you're focused on just the stimulus of training, not progress. It's almost as if progress doesn't matter. It's almost as if someone who plays a slot machine 
where a slot machine is not about winning or losing. It's about the dopamine rush you get when you play. So that's why people become addicted. Now, if they just won every single time, it'd probably be boring to them. But it's the randomness and everything that goes with it, the anticipation, the lights, the sounds, all of that stuff. That's what makes it really addictive. And sometimes people are similar. Sometimes people take that concept and apply it to their own training, where now just the stimulus of working out is the payoff. And I think that's a mistake. You want to focus on what is what's the performance you're trying to achieve. Yeah, I even do that with some, I've worked with only a handful of physique clients and even the average person who wants to lose weight, look better. Like the first thing I do is like translate to their aesthetic goals into performance goals. And if you've done it long enough, you have a pretty damn good idea. Like even the handful of natural bodybuilders I've worked with, I, the super high level gals and girls, and then I can't think of an exception of one of them who was not pretty freaking strong. Were they as strong as power lifters or some Olympic weightlifters? Yeah, not really, but compared to the average gym population, like substantially stronger. And, but that's the thing you can monitor and measure. And like you said, if you see performance just trending down for several days, weeks, months, then do you really think your physique's going to get better? Yeah. Probably not. Like you're probably overexpended your bank account again, and you should look at what's going on. Steve Maxwell likes to use pull-ups as a barometer of progress. Mm. So for example, let's say you have a client who's 30, 40 pounds overweight, and he can't do one pull-up. Five, six months later, let's fast forward, all of a sudden he can do 10 pull-ups. Chances are his body fat has gone down considerably, is in addition to his strength going up. Chances are it wasn't just an increase in strength where he's carrying the same around amount of body fat. He's just able, he's just a lot stronger now. It's probably a combination of both. Body fat probably went down, his strength went up. Yeah, yeah, I like that. What is your thoughts? I know you do some skateboarding. Obviously, you've done snowboarding. You're generally yeah. pretty active. What is your thoughts about recreation for the average person? My bias is... I think sometimes we get too hyper-focused on fitness. And as much as I love lifting stuff, it's super fun. It just seems like we're not accessing part of our brains that we're designed to. Like just the amount of neural circuits that go into just simply catching a ball, playing Frisbee, doing a chaotic sport, surfing, skateboarding, like interacting in a semi-unknown environment is right. just crazy and it seems like a lot of people are just becoming like lifting sea slugs where their certain parts of their brain are just atrophied <laughs> yeah i'm a big fan of recreation it's funny you bring that up because i remember there were times where it would be a sunday and i'd be like hey i'm gonna go to red rock tomorrow with my dogs go hiking all day you want to come with me and a lot of times my gym rat friends would say no nah, i got leg day tomorrow <laughs> take it easy i was like man you can't even go active so it's almost as if sometimes that people's intense workouts are impeding activity because now they're hyper focused on oh i need to relax as much as possible in between workouts otherwise i'm not going to maximize muscle growth and strength and i think that's where a focus on physical training is to your detriment rather it's not additive at that point i think the real benefit of physical training is that it enables you to be more active so but for example i do love skateboarding but what i have found is my body is way more resilient from all the weight training i do meaning i've had some pretty bad crashes where i've gone flying off my board and basically landed in the plank position in the grass at full impact and guess what? I didn't break anything. I didn't break a bone. I didn't twist an ankle, nothing. I got up and I'm almost 50. I got up from that. A lot of guys that are 
close to 50 or older, they worry about tripping over something, thinking, man, if I fall down, I'm going to blow out my hip. And I think what's the benefit of a good dedication to a physique or to a strength training regimen is that it does make your body more resilient so that you can do those fun things and not have and have a level of protection that you wouldn't otherwise have. But I think that it's, let's also be honest, weight training is, to me, a gym is not a, an exciting environment to be in. When I go to a gym, I want to hit my three, four moves and I want to get out of there. I know people that just hang out in the gym for hours. They're there before <laughs> I get there, they're there afterwards. And to them, it's basically, it's more of a social thing than it is anything else. They're just kicking, they're just, and that's okay. I'm not, if that makes yeah. you happy, by all means, go for it. I'm not diminishing that in any way or denigrating that rather in any way. That's if that, if you're whatever payoff you're getting from it, that's fine. But my attitude is I want to be really expedient when it comes to strength training, because as much as I enjoy training, I don't enjoy it that much where I just want to keep going on and on. In fact, basically I'm pretty tired after I hit my three or four moves, I push it hard on three, four compound moves. I'm ready to get out of there. Now contrast that with skateboarding. I could go skateboarding for the whole day especially on a nice day, I could go in the morning and not even realize it's the sun's going down because it's so much fun. You're just out there. So when you're doing something that's really fun, you're not, it, it doesn't feel like work to me. Weight training is work. I enjoy it, but it's work. It's not something where I'm like, Oh, I can't wait to do heavy squats today. I was like, Oh, I can't wait to do heavy deadlifts. <laughs> but yeah. I like the payoff that comes with accomplishing a goal, but it's not something that I would want to do. I wouldn't want to do an hour of heavy deadlifting. Let's put it that way. But doing an hour of skateboarding is easy. Going for a hike for an hour, easy. So I do think that people should, that the real benefits of physical training is that you're much healthier and you're in better shape so that you can get a lot more out of the activities you enjoy. Yeah, that's my bias too. My number one thing is just kiteboarding. So most of my yeah. training is designed around kiteboarding. Yeah, I do some grip stuff and some other things. But right. if I'm in a location where I can kiteboard and it's windy, I'm going to go kiteboard. And if that means I miss a training day, cool. I'm totally fine with it. That's actually preferable. And like you said, with controlled environments, I think if people figure out what their priorities are, like I have friends who compete in Olympic weightlifting and powerlifting, they're the inverse. Like they can't accept a risk doing something else because they're also nationally ranked and that's the thing they do. Totally get it. But for me, the gym is a much more controlled environment. So my tolerance for risk and injuries is pretty low right. compared to if I'm kiteboarding, the reality is at some point you try to do everything you can to protect yourself, but some right. shit's going to go wrong and there's a much higher risk there that you could damage yourself. And I'm okay with that, right? Because I've said, okay, this is my priority. This is what I want to do. I do everything I can to mitigate the risk, but I chose to do it. So I have to accept the risk also. Or it seems like general population isn't necessarily thinking about the things that they want to do and the things that weight training, cardiovascular training could enable them to do more of in the future. And paradoxically, that makes them healthier. It just seems like it's reversed where it's like, you just got to lift weights. You got to do some cardio. And I think they lose kind of motivation to do that after a while. Yeah. I think the, the mistake a lot of people make is they are focused on avoiding what they don't want as their primary right. motivation. So it's like, I got to get my workouts in and I got to eat clean. Otherwise I'm going to be overweight. I'm not going to look good. So it's in a, it's a motivation of avoidance rather than a motivation of going after something in a positive manner. So I want to get my workouts in because I enjoy being strong and I like accomplishing things. So it's positive motivation. It's not, okay, I got to get my workouts in. Otherwise I'm going to become weak. I'm going to lose muscle. 
And I'm not going to be as respected by people when they see me because my shoulders are going to be sunken in. Those are all negative reinforcements. I rather focus on positive reinforcements. And when it comes to training also, I think what keeps me excited is developing new skills. So for yeah. example, I hit a PR in the deadlift back in 2020 and I pulled over 605. That was the most I've ever lifted. Nice. That's awesome. After I pulled that, I'm thinking, thank you. After I pulled that, Initially, I'm thinking I should go for 700 pounds now. <laughs> then I started thinking, I was like, look, I'm not a competitive power lifter. And pulling the 605 was really hard on my body, meaning that I was able to achieve it, but I felt like I was going to break in half after doing it. So the risk versus reward is becoming increasingly unfavorable the heavier the weight gets, especially at my body weight. I'm only around 200 pounds. So I would have to, I would have to either increase my body weight by quite a bit or accept very high risk versus reward conditions. And I, neither one seemed favorable to me. So now I still deadlift, but I don't have the pressure on the deadlift when I do it now because I'm not pursuing anything. So in essence, I actually enjoy deadlifting a lot more now because I'm just focused on technique. I'm focused on doing the movement. I think it's a great movement to stay in your regimen. I'd rather be able to deadlift four or 500 pounds for the next 20, 30 years than work up to 700 pounds once. But now my body's so beaten down, I can't even deadlift anymore. I can't even do 135 at that point. But I like developing new skills. So right now, to being able to do Nordic curls is mm, my primary focus. Nice. I've had this Nordic curl device forever, and I never really focused on working up to reps. So towards the end of last year, I decided, okay, my goal now is to be able to do five full range repetitions of Nordic curls. That's what I'm going to focus on. So the first goal is doing one repetition. And before even doing that, the first goal is, can you control the negative? Because I couldn't even do that. I'm just flopping down. You look at most people, they just flop down and then they do a push up off the bottom. And that's not really going to get you anywhere. So I realized the first thing I need to do is learn how to control the negative. Now, just being able to control the negative for five reps, that builds a ton of hamstring strength and glute strength. Just being able to do that. It also builds confidence because when you go from flopping to controlling the negative, that's a step in the right direction. That's a progression. And then you start working on partials. You just, I stack plates at the end of the Nordic curl device. Mm. Now my range of motion is limited. So instead of having to go all the way down here, I'm a little bit higher up and I don't have to, the range of motion is not as pronounced. So that's one way to build upon success rather than trying to do a full range, trying to do a full rep and then failing. Okay, let's try it again next time, failing. Try it again next time, failing. Or you barely do one repetition. That's not going to get you from one or from zero to five. But building, being able to do five negatives, that's a big step in the right direction. And then let's say you, you do, you stack a bunch of plates and now you're decreasing the range of motion by four inches and you work up to five repetitions in that range. That's a step in the right direction. Now you go to two inches and you do five reps there. And then you eventually get to the point where you can do full range. So I didn't work up to one full range rep, but it was a maximum effort. So I'm not going to go from one to five just by doing lots of singles. It's just <laughs> too much of a central nervous system burnout. And it's not fun either. You don't want to go into a workout realizing you're going to have to put that level of effort in it every single time. But the partials are a real confidence builder. So what I do now is when I do Nordic curls, I stack a bunch of plates for my warm up sets. And, I, and then I just lower and then I remove the plates and get to the money sets over the course of a workout. And that is has actually been working really well. But the thing about Nordic Curls, it's not so much that there's anything special about Nordic Curls other than it's special to me. It gets me excited mm -hmm. about training. Someone else may say, oh yeah, that looks cool. I should do that too. 
But that's not a compelling enough reason. This is a very difficult move. If you don't have your own internal motivation for wanting to do it, you're not going to last long enough to achieve it. So it can't be, oh, I saw someone else do it and that looks exciting. It has to be more than that. But that's what keeps me excited about training is learning new skill sets rather than just trying to get better at stuff that I'm already pretty good at. Yeah, and I think that's an underrated thing for trainers. But you talk to anyone who's been training for years into decades, that's like all they focus on. Yeah. Like I, I do kiteboard and I do some grip stuff. And my goal is to lift the 175 Thomas Inch dumbbell. That's so awesome. I have this big ass dumbbell I have to stare at every day I go into the garage. Uh -huh. And it's this weird, just tiny progressions over time, right? Because by definition, your grip muscles are a little bit smaller. They're not going to develop as fast. You add intelligent training for a couple of years. You add that on top of each other. And like you said, it's the game of my buddy, Adam Glass said this, where can I move next? Yeah. Today may be sub max, but I can do reps. That feels great. Right. Right. Today may be right. an awesome day. I got a single that I've never lifted the weight before at that. Cool. Next day may be a density. I could cram more work into the quality. Keep it the same. Like you said, I may play with range of motion. And it's just this never-ending progression. But I think the mistake people make is trying to do the thing that's sexy of just keep doing right. 1RMs all the time. Yeah, that works when you're new. But after a while, like you, you, even if you attempt that, like your performance just goes off. Starts right. diminishing. Yeah. Yeah. True. Yeah. And finding those days where it's there and it's not there and not forcing it. Yeah, exactly. I always say that what many people do is they demonstrate strength every time they train. They're not mm. building strength because they go to the gym and every time they go, it's a maximum effort or what they perceive as their maximum effort. But that's not going to be additive over time. That high intensity type training that works for maybe a couple of weeks and then your body just burns out and you adapt and that's the end of it. So that's the thing about one set to failure. That'll work for, I would say, up to six weeks. Whenever someone tries it for the first time, they think they finally reached this magic program. This is the way I always should have trained. I always should have been doing this. What was I doing wasting time with all that volume? Because you're getting stronger every week for a while. But then eventually you hit a plateau and there's nowhere to go because you're doing a maximum effort every time. There's only Where do you go beyond a maximum every single time? And also it becomes a daunting task. You go into those training sessions dreading it, going, oh, I have to do this today. It's a good change of pace. Every once in a while, I'll do the one set to failure. And it's it's exciting when, it, when you're going through it, when you're making progress. I know in the back of my head, this is not going to go on forever. So just enjoy it while it lasts. And then you're going to have to dial back the intensity at some point. But knowing that going in, it's not as big of a deal. But I think that's, it's, I think with your grip strength, though, do you do captains of crunch, stuff like that to increase your grip strength for holding or for picking up the Thomas Inch dumbbell? No. I competed in some grip stuff. And when I did that, you had to do grippers. So I did train them a right. little bit. But what I found, I've talked to other people too. Those have like probably the lowest transfer okay. um, because it's so yeah. hyper specialized in the hand. Right. So I've had much better transfer with the two things that transferred the most are shocker, double overhand, two inch axle. So similar yeah. grip, right. but it's a deadlift. So you can get a lot of load. You're going to be limited by grip strength. And the other one is Saxon bar. So it looks like a metal two by six where you can add weight to it. So now you're in a pinch grip like this with your open hands and you can also then tilt it. So the amount of wrist strength uh, okay. to keep it tilted with an open hand and a thumb strength. And again, it's a deadlift, right? So your right. max there is going to be well below what your normal deadlift is. So your pinch strength is going to be a limiter. Like those are the ones I found that have had the biggest transfer. So again, it's back to similar exactly. principles. What transfers? 
And if it transfers well, what movement can you probably get the highest relative load on? Because you're going to see more transfer than a lot of grip weirdos. If you like doing key pinch and all this little tiny stuff, cool, go crazy, man. But do I really think like this little thing is going to transfer <laughs> to like an axle or something else? They're just too different. Yeah, that's a really uh, interesting point. I've, I've always found that nothing really transfers to other things for me, meaning that if I get really good at kettlebell overhead presses, but I never do barbell overhead presses, I'm going to be weak on the barbell mm. overhead press and vice versa. So if I do these grippers now, just to build up that crushing strength, sure. and initially I thought, oh, this will improve my deadlift, but not really, because deadlifting is more holding grip strength, not yep. crushing grip strength. So in other words, me crushing the bar is unnecessary. That's a waste of energy. Me over-gripping the bar. In some ways, it can be counterproductive because you've improved your squeezing grip strength, but you only need so much squeezing grip strength when you're doing a deadlift. Otherwise, you're just overdoing it. And that actually takes away from it. So you, I've always found that I get good at whatever I'm doing. So if I'm doing the grippers, I'm going to get good at that, but it's not necessarily going to carry over to anything else. If I get good at deficit deadlifts, that should improve my deadlift off the floor. But in my experience, it never has. I did two inch and four inch deficit deadlifts for a, almost a year one time. I didn't do any deadlifts off the floor. And I worked up to some pretty good numbers close to where, what I could actually deadlift off the floor. And then I thought, you know what? Today, I'm going to try deadlifts off the floor. Let's see how much carryover there is. I was actually weaker off the floor because the groove mechanics are totally different. I got really good at a legs drive because the legs drive is way more pronounced with the deficit deadlift. So my nervous system learned how to maximize that. But now what I'm now that I'm deadlifting off the floor, it almost feels like a partial. There's mm. different mechanics. And it took a while to get back in the groove for off the floor. So my experience has always been there aren't any real magical transfers between the magical transfer. It has to be very similar to the move you're trying to improve. If it's, if it's once it starts getting a little bit too different, there's really no transfer. I mean, something like lat pull downs, for example. Has anyone ever done lat pull downs and improved their pull up numbers? No. Well, let me just really. get really strong on lat pull downs and my pull ups will go up by default. No. You can get there's more transfer from pull ups to lat pull downs than from lat pull downs to pull ups. But even there, I know some people that are really good at pull ups, that like weighted pull ups, and their lat pull down numbers are nothing impressive. And I know I've seen people do lap pull downs with 300 pounds. When I went to the College of Worcester in Ohio in the 1990s, mm. I remember during one of the breaks, I worked out at one of the local gyms. Was this the first time I ever was in a powerlifting bodybuilder type gym? And the strongest men and women I've ever seen were in that gym. It's the first time I ever saw guys benching 500 pounds, like it was nothing, squatting 600 pounds. There were women in there repping out with 225. I was the weakest person in there by far. And I was shocked by what I saw in there because it was, it was so rudimentary compared to what we see in commercial gym. <laughs> it was just rusted equipment everywhere. But because there weren't a lot of distractions and all that, people were getting a lot stronger in an environment like that. And that's what made me realize that we have way too much complexity in a lot of the things we do here. But at the same time, I've seen people that are really good at powerlifting squats but let's say they try to do an Olympic level type squat where it's basically ass to grass. Uh, They're not strong in that. A lot of times they can't even do it. They don't have the mobility to do it. And also there's people that are really good at Olympic lifting. Like when someone does a power clean or even a full clean, the way they really load up the legs in a much more pronounced way than when someone does a deadlift for the most part. So when you were looking at that, you would think, huh, I should deadlift the way someone does a power clean. I'll load up my legs more. But that's a very precise technique to Olympic weightlifting. 
that doesn't transfer over to deadlifting as much. Otherwise, every deadlifter would use the same exact technique. So sometimes you find, you've, I've seen people that can power clean 500 pounds, but their deadlift is not that, it's way more than 500 pounds, their deadlift, but it's not 800 pounds. It's not even 700 pounds because the technique is just that much different with it. Yeah. Said principle always works. Specific adaptation to impose demand. And that was probably one of the biggest mistakes I made with my deadlift early on was all the videos I was watching was from primarily people who were deadlifting. But at the time, I didn't know that their main goal was Olympic weightlifting. I was watching <laughs> films of them deadlifting. And so I played around with all different deadlift things and it worked, right? I got stronger. And it wasn't until I worked with a guy who was more powerlifting, who's like, what are you doing? I'm like, it's a deadlift, right? And then you realize that, oh yeah, if you're powerlifting and your goal is only to deadlift, you just have to get the bar up, right? You don't have right. to be in any right. other position to do yeah. anything with it. But if you're Olympic yeah. weightlifting, you can't just go back more. You have to go up because yeah. you have to finish the movement you're trying to do. So again, right. they're both deadlifts, but again, yeah. for what purpose? And even just your intent of doing it is going to be completely different then yeah. too. And then how tall are you, Mike? Oh, I have stupid long femurs. I'm like six, three and a half. Okay. So you're a really tall guy. So I think that sometimes I'm six feet tall. So sometimes yeah. guys like us can make, especially you is we're looking at deadlift, deadlift technique from a guy who's five foot five. And yeah, I did that too. Emulate that. It's going to be different. Our mechanics <laughs> are going to be a lot different than someone does that. Like Mark Phillippe taught me a lot about how to deadlift properly. Nice. Mark Phillippe is about 5'10", five, 5'11", five, and he's stocky, big legs. Where I'm more of a very long-legged guy. You know, my legs are the hardest muscle group for me to develop any real size with. I can develop strength, but getting my legs bigger is a daunting task as opposed to my upper body. So I picked up a lot of good deadlifting techniques from him. But what I realized is that what he does, he looks like he's in the bottom position of a parallel squat at the start yes. of the deadlift. So he really loads up his legs. Now, if I tried doing that, that just takes me out of the pocket. It's yep. too much. I need to do maybe 70% of what he's doing. So I should drop my hips lower than I was doing, but not try to drop it as low as what he's doing because it's different mechanics for our body types. So I picked up a lot of principles from him, but it wasn't until I fine-tuned it with practice that I really got a lot out of it. But what I really got from him was this whole dip and drive mechanism where you drop your hips and pull the bar as quickly as possible so that you don't want to drop your hips and then stay in that bottom position for five seconds and then finally pull the bar. Now, someone like Ed Cohen can do that. But again, we're talking about the best. Ed we're Cohen's about not Michael, real tall. Right, the shorter guy <laughs> is the best power lifter in the world. Yeah. What he's doing is not necessarily what's going to work for me. So what I found, also at the same time, I'm not the most coordinated guy. So if I try to if I try to drop my hips as quickly as possible and then pull the bar as quickly as possible, there's going to be a disconnect. So for me, it's more drop my hips. Once my hips are in the position I want them to be in, once I feel it in that position, pull the bar. Don't try to jerk the bar. Don't try to explode. Just accelerate. Accelerate the bar all the way to the top. And that works for me. So that's just a level of fine tuning that has to happen with your own workouts and other people. Is we're not going to be able to replicate what someone else is doing 100%. We have to take principles and then modify it to our own needs. Yeah, and the other biggest mistake I made is looking at a technique thinking, wow, that looks stupid. I shouldn't try that. And it was from a very high level lifter who was very successful, obviously different body types, et cetera. And so the biggest change I made in the last four years was 
bringing my feet closer in, but externally rotate. Like my heels are almost like three inches apart. The first time I saw someone do that, I was like, what the hell is that? That looks so stupid. And I tried it and I'm like, oh my God, I think I felt my hamstrings for the first time on a deadlift ever. And what I found is I can get my femurs out of the way and get the bar going more back and not get pulled over forward as much. I know exactly what you're talking about because I my deadlift- Because you deadlift a little bit similar, not probably quite yeah. that extreme. I don't but... think I'm quite as close a stance as what you're talking about, but it's pretty close compared to most people. It's definitely yeah. conventional, feet turned out a little bit. I probably could benefit from closer stance. That's probably something I should play around with. Most people think my stance is too close as it is, but I probably could benefit taking it even a little bit closer. But what I find is that if I even go out a little bit more, it becomes more of a back pull. I can see that my back position starts going over as the bar pulls up. While if I have my feet in the right position, my back's in this 45 degree angle and it stays there from the start as the bar keeps moving, as opposed to might be in a 45 degree angle. But once I pull the bar, I shift more down and then I come back up. And that doesn't feel anywhere near as good when I'm pulling with the back more than trying to get that legs drive. If you can, like Mark Phillippe said, if you have a really good legs drive, you'll get the bar from floor to just below the knees in one swift motion. It'll pop. He goes, when you do it right, the bar feels like it's popping off the ground. It almost feels like effortless, as if you're cheating. So the bar goes from the floor to right below the knees, and then you pull from there with your strength all the way to the top. So that that took a while to, and I don't, even now, I don't always get it right on every single repetition but when i do get it right i know i got it right because it feels effortless yeah and we're almost at the end here so the two parts is the other part of talking about transfer so my little experiment i'm doing now is taking the two inch axle and then doing mixed grip so my grip's not limiting on it and then i'm working the weights on that back up and i'm curious to see if that'll transfer to my normal deadlift with a one inch diameter my thought pattern is it's similar enough, but it's almost like a worst case scenario. Cause I've got a solid 75 pound axle bar that there's no bend. The thing doesn't flex at all. So there's no yeah. bend in it. Yeah. And yeah, people forget that with an axle, it's sticking further in front of you. So the bar is literally trying to pull you more forward, which yeah. is almost more like a worst case scenario, but it's still a deadlift. It's still the same right. high as the plates. It's all relatively similar. So I don't know. I'll let you know in about four to six weeks what happens. You know a guy named Andrew Journey yet? Oh, yeah. I know Andrew. Yeah. Yeah. So Andrew is hes around your height. I believe he's six foot three, something like that. Yeah. He deadlifted. He did the Apollon axle with over 400 pounds. Yeah. Crazy. His grip strength is off the charts. The interesting thing, though, is that his maximum deadlift, just regular deadlift, alternating grip, is maybe 600 pounds. So it's not yeah. super high given how impressive his grip strength is. That's the most he ever deadlift. So I, so it's, I don't know. I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how it affects you. I don't think it can hurt in any way. Anything, yeah. anything that, that's a very specific grip strength for a deadlifting. So I don't think it's going to hurt. It's just one of those things where you don't want your expectation to be too high. Oh, no. <laughs> That's why you get disappointed because sometimes I've done stuff where I'm like, oh, man, I can't wait to go back to this. I remember Christian Thibodeau talked about how he started doing overhead presses with the barbell and bands. He mm. worked up to a new PR with bands. So I think he had 200 pounds on the bar and then 50 pounds in band resistance. And he was just banging out reps. And then he goes, man, I can't wait to see how strong I am without the bands. 
And his numbers without the beds were exactly the same. He couldn't lift any more on the barbell than he could with the barbell and beds because his body adapted to that. And after he told me that, because before he told me that I was doing a lot of deadlifts with those deadlift bands you can buy mm -hmm. on Amazon. So it's basically the poor man's version of adding bands resistance to deadlifts. And I was starting to get pretty good at those. I was like, man, I can't wait to see how this transfers over to deadlifts. And after hear hearing him tell that story, I go, okay, don't get distracted with this. It really didn't improve my deadlift that much at all. It did, it's doing the chains improved my deadlift a little bit because I think more than anything else, it was a mental break from oh, huge, yeah. deadlifting. Yeah. So I did chains for a couple of weeks and then that was a couple of weeks before I hit the PR. So I'm like, man, these chains really make a difference. But I think the big difference was, is that it felt different. So your body had to be a little bit more in tuned. You know, you're not used to the weight getting more difficult as it comes off the ground. Right. You're used to it getting easier as it comes off the ground. So here, the first couple inches are the easiest part of the lift. And then it gets progressively more difficult. So it does develop that one gear strength where you learn how to accelerate all the way through. But if you only do that, now you're getting good at that acceleration and the strength curve is different when you go back to a regular deadlift and you're just going to be out of the pocket. Yeah, I think the same way. I think one of the main benefits of chains is literally you can lock out a heavier weight most likely than you've ever done before. So yeah. it's like you're giving your brain that, oh, I actually did lock out a weight that's 20, 30, 40 pounds max of yeah. what I've ever done before. And it's a real thing. It's not a, a fake thing. You didn't knock your way into it. But again, if you only do that, I find that it's limiting. So I think doing it at strategic points so that you can finish a very heavy load. But like you said, the pull is also different too. So you're practicing different mechanics all the time also. So it's, yeah, I found the transfer, I don't know, my limited experience, chains work good for a short period of time. But if they worked that all the time, you would see all the lifters lifting with chains every session, which yeah, yeah. you don't see. There reason not to do it. You would just do it every single time. Right. They even bothered not using chains. Exactly. Get stronger with chains. What you said is 100% my experience too, where I worked up to 525 pounds in the bar, 60 pounds of chains. And I did a couple of reps with that. And mm. that built my confidence because as you said, now yep. you know how close to 600 pounds at the top, you know how that feels. So when I did go to deadlift 600 pounds, even though it felt heavy off the ground, my confidence was you when it came off the ground, I knew I had the lift, even though it started slowing down as I got to the knees. And then I screamed it out like a lunatic to finish. <laughs> but the fact that the, the second it came off the ground, I knew I had the lift. I knew I had the lift. I just had to stay with it. And that confidence came from it being a familiar, it felt familiar because the way I did with the chains is how it felt. So I'm a, yeah, I'm hundred percent with you. It's just one of those things where you think sometimes people's expectations get a little too high with something. They try something new and they get excited. They're like, oh man, once I get good at this, it's like, look, I, once I work up to five Nordic curls, I don't, I, no doubt that's going to improve other things because anytime you improve hamstrings that much, it's going to carry over to sprinting and other things. But if you never go sprinting and then you just work up to Nordic curls, you haven't worked on the mechanics of actually sprinting. So what, how are you going to improve without actually doing something? So it's the same thing. I don't have any illusions or expectations of, okay, if I get really strong on Nordic curls, it's going to have this magical transfer where my deadlift PRs go up as well. No, it's just, just I mean, at least for me, it, things just don't work like that. Yeah, I did that with the dynamic effort stuff on deadlifts. And I've got a rack, I can run bands around the bottom. And it was great. That lift went up substantially. But did it transfer to my normal deadlift? In my case, 
actually no. What I found was <laughs> submax weight moved faster. My yeah. max load yeah. was about the same. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was yeah. all excited too on test dicks. I was like, ah, oh, 315 was just so fast. Like 365 was, ah, oh, this is great. And you get to 405, 415, you're like, yeah, it's about the same. <laughs> <laughs> Remember when Poliquin was really propagating doing dumbbell presses on a Swiss ball? Oh, and yeah, yeah. Like, Paul Czech, like, too. That, yeah, that was a new thing. Paul Czech as well. So, man, I'm going to, I remember I worked up to 100 pound dumbbell presses on the Swiss ball, just repping it out. And I go, man, I can't wait to see what the transfer is back to a regular bench. I was actually weaker on a bench. It's like my body adapted to doing the move on a Swiss ball. There, there was no transfer back. It was actually a negative transfer back to off a bench. So it's just one of those things where you don't want to get too distracted by these exciting things. The last thing I'll say about this is a lot of times on Instagram, we see people putting up these training clips of things they don't even do in their own training. That's yeah. not how they're just doing this because they know it's going to get the most views. The stuff I post is not exciting. It's me doing weighted pull-ups, deadlifts, the same moves week after week. It's like, oh, wow, here's Mike doing Nordic curls again. How exciting. So other people feel like they have to step it up. They go, okay, I'm going to do Nordic curls with my cat on my head. <laughs> I'm going to do Nordic curls where I have a milkshake with a straw in it at the bottom. And I'm going to take a sip at the bottom of each rep. You start doing these ludicrous, ridiculous things because you're going to get more abuse. Just look at the level of idiocy we see on Instagram from these fitness influencer type people. And I guarantee you when we, when they do their actual workouts, they're doing the basic moves that the rest of us do, because that's what works. Nothing ever beats the basics. You're never going to get better than the compound lifts that we all know work well. Squats, deadlifts, overhead press, dips, pull-ups, bent over row, to name a few. You're really not going to get better than those with all of these complicated motions that it takes forever to develop the skill of doing the move. The more skill it requires, the more difficult it is to get to going to be to make any actual progress with it. Yeah. As we wrap up, any good music, any good tunes you're into as of late? I know you listen to a lot of what I consider great music. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, you might have you heard of the band Fire from the Gods? I have not yet. Oh, I'll send you some of their music after. Oh, cool. They're awesome. Yeah. My wife and I are going to go see Fire from the Gods. If you like Living Color, it's that kind of vibe, oh, that kind of music. Yeah. I they're love, awesome. A little bit. I, not, I don't want to say rap rock because that's yeah. not. That's a little bit too simplistic for them. The vocalist is incredible. The vocalist of Fire from the Gods is off the charts. And there's a song they did where it's the lead singer of Fire from the Gods and Corey from Living Color doing one of the Fire oh, from the wow. Gods. Oh, wow. I just heard it last night. It's incredible. It's really good. So we're going to see them this weekend at a small club in Vegas. So it's going to be awesome. There's a place called 24 in Oxford, which used to be vinyl, which is basically a place that... Probably doesn't fit more than 200 people in there. Reminds me of some of the clubs I went to as a kid when I went to hardcore shows. Yeah. So I'm for that because I haven't been to a concert in a while. I went to a couple last year that were good. Last year, saw Judas Priest. They were awesome. Oh, yes. Saw Exodus and Testament. They were yeah, awesome. Yeah, I saw that show. That was great. And Jerry Cantrell, he was really good. We saw Aerosmith last year. They were awesome still. But I used to go to shows all the time out here pre-pandemic because in Vegas, I mean, there's almost there's a show almost every night that's worth going to, certainly every weekend. And the venues out here are fantastic. So I'm looking forward to some more shows. I think Thy, Thy Art is Murder is coming. I really want Ooh, to see that. Nice. I'm a big fan of theirs. And there's a band called Brand of Sacrifice. They're awesome. Hmm. I believe they're I haven't heard of them. Too. Yeah, it's a, I don't know if you're into that genre. It's basically deathcore, death metal type yeah, stuff. some of that's good. Yeah. yeah. I'd love to see some hardcore shows. I remember seeing Madball here back in 2015. They were awesome. 
I'd love to see some more shows like that. But Vegas gets a lot of metal shows. It doesn't get as much of the hard. The hardcore scene is not that big. Usually if I want to see a hardcore show, I'll go to San Diego or Los Angeles, somewhere like that. I remember I saw Nails in 2015 as well. They were awesome. Oh, wow. Yeah, they were really good. So I'm looking forward to some really good shows. I haven't seen anything besides this Fire from the Gods, and they're the opening act for a band that I don't even care for. We're just going to see the Fire from the Gods. They're opening for Norma Jean, who I never even oh. heard of until they're, I saw this They're concert. okay. Like some of their stuff I really like, and some of it I was yeah. like, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to have to check out some of their stuff. Maybe it's worth sticking around for that. But there's a UFC this weekend, too. John Jones is making his comeback. I really want to see Oh, that. that's this weekend. Yeah. Yeah, heavyweight premiere. So that's going to be really interesting. He hasn't fought in three years, so it's going to be interesting. He went up like a bunch of weight classes too, didn't he, yeah. supposedly? He went from light heavyweight to heavyweight, which is a pretty big jump because light, yeah. heavyweight, light heavyweight tops off at 205. Heavyweight goes up to 265. Yeah. So he weighs 250 pounds now, but you have to realize he walked around at maybe 230 when he fought at 205. Yeah, he was a bigger dude. Yeah, yeah. He. It's not as if he was walking around at 205. He's probably 205 for about two seconds. Yeah. And then his body weight goes back to 220 and then 230 by the time he's actually in the ring. And now he's walking around at 250. He doesn't have to cut weight at all. But he spent the last three years really focused on a good strength training regimen. Looked like he had a really good trainer because he was doing all the basic stuff that we would recommend. A lot of deadlifts and squats and zercher lifts and things like that. So he was doing a lot of really good stuff. So I think it's I think his strength training regimen was on point and he took the time to put on the weight too. He didn't just put on 20, 30 pounds in let's say six months to a year. He put it on over the course of several years and then got rid of the excess. So I think he said at his heaviest, he was about 265, 270, but he was carrying too much body fat. So now he's at 250 where he doesn't have shredded abs, but he's lean and in shape and his cardio is good. It's the right balance of everything. So that's exciting. I'm gonna I'm excited to see that fight for sure. How about you? Are there any shows coming that you're excited about in your area? I just got tickets to see a skinny puppy in oh, Denver, cool. Colorado. Yeah. Their last yeah. tour, they've been around for 40 years. And then I might try to see Devil Driver in Austin, possibly, depending on when we get there. Yeah. And then what I'll say, oh, I Gojira with Mastodon and Lorna Shore. So they're doing I an outside Lorna gig Shore. this yeah, August. Yeah, I would go to that just for Lorna Shore. That new Lorna Shore record is awesome. It's amazing. The first time I heard it, I was like, I don't know about this. I was like, eh. and the <laughs> second time I heard it, I was like, huh. And the third time I heard it, which was the three songs all back to back, like the whole 21 minutes to three parts. And I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. <laughs> Matt, UFC fighter Matt Brown, he's really into metal music. So yeah. About that often. Matt basically says the best music is the stuff that you don't like initially and it grows. Yeah. As opposed to the first time you hear a song, you're like, man, you played a hundred times because you like it so much. And then you burn it out and you never listen to it again. So that's what I found with the whole deathcore genre. Bands like Die Art is Murder, White Chow. Mm -hmm. It took me a while to get used to those vocals. They do the screaming vocals. Initially, I was like, eh, I don't like the screaming vocal stuff. But now I really like it. Yeah, it was kind of like Gojira. I saw them open for Five Finger Death Punch years ago. And I was like, oh, they were good, but I just couldn't really get into it. And then two, about two years ago, I was like, oh, it's all of a sudden you're like listening to stuff and you're like, oh, I get it now. Oh, yeah. and then you go back and listen to the earlier stuff you didn't like. And you're like, oh, this makes so much sense yeah. now. This is great. <laughs> I saw Chelsea Grin open up for Amity Affliction and I thought they were terrible. Oh, interesting. And I was like, man, this is noise. I was like, this is <laughs> now, now I like Chelsea Grin more than Amity Affliction. It just took a while for them to grow. Oh, up. interesting. Yeah. Yeah.
best hardcore live show you've ever seen? Chrome X for sure. Okay. Yeah, Chrome X in the 1990s were unbeatable. That was the best hardcore show ever. I remember the first time I saw Chrome X, it left an indelible impression in me. I still look back at that as the best show ever. I would say not. they're not really a, a hardcore band. They don't identify as a hardcore band, but they were accepted by the horror, hardcore genre as Body Count, Ice T's. Oh, yeah, yeah. I saw Body Count when they came out with that first record at the 930 yeah. Club in D.C. In fact, oh, I, don't nice. think, I don't even think the record was out yet. It was pre-record where Ice-T did a rap set, and then he came back with the band and did a body count set. Oh, nice. I've ever been to. And remember, this is in a club that probably couldn't fit more than 150 people in it. So it was a really intimate venue. I was right in front of the stage. I was pressed against the stage. So he's right in front of me the whole time. That was a great show. That was probably the one of the best, if not the best concerts I've ever seen. Nice. The two hardcore bands I haven't ever seen live are the Cro-Mags and the Bad Brains. So those yeah. are on my list. <laughs> I didn't see Bad Brains until, even though I grew up in DC, I never, I always missed Bad Brains. I saw HR do a reggae set one time. That was awesome. How was that? It was really good. Yeah, it was really good. That was in the same venue, 930 Club, as I saw a lot of good shows. But I did see Bad Brains in Vegas in 2011, I want to say, at the House of Blues. And they were awesome. They were still really good. Funny thing is, a friend of mine got me backstage passes, so I went and talked to the guys after the show. Oh, nice. I wanted to take, I asked H, usually I never ask anyone to take a picture with them. It's just, it's not something I care to do. But HR, I'm such a big fan. I was like, hey, man, I'm sure I don't want to bother you, but I'd love to get a picture with you. And he looked at me as if I asked if I could sleep with his wife. (laughs) He had this psychotic look in his face. Like I was asked, like what I asked was so offensive to him. I was like, damn, man, is he going to kill me now? And then he just turned turned and walked away. And I was like, okay, (laughs) all the stuff I've heard about HR is pretty accurate. That guy's out of his mind. (laughs) The rest of the guys were cool. Daryl, Jennifer, and Dr. Is it Dr. No? Is that what he calls himself? Those guys were cool. Yeah, those guys were super cool. Yeah, I just find it funny how sometimes the people on stage you think are the craziest, like people you'd be most afraid of. I met Jerry only from the Misfits years ago, and he was like the nicest dude ever. He was just so nice. And then I went to get a picture with him, and he pulls the hair down, takes his glasses off, and does the whole pose and everything. And he was like super cool. (laughs) I met Doyle once when he did. Yeah, Yeah, I went to interview him, and I so I hung out with him and Elisa from Arch Enemy was there. Yeah, yeah, cool. So anyway, Doyle, though, I was a big fan of his growing up because the people that got me into physical training were Danzig, because back then Danzig was yeah. jacked. I remember I saw oh, him. Yeah. Man, I want to look like that. And then Doyle has always been jacked. He oh, looks always. Exactly the same now as he did back, probably even Crazy. bigger than he did in the 1990s. And then Harley from the Chromex. These are the three inspirations mm. I had for getting into physical training. I'm actually friends with Harley. And now I'm like, man, what was I inspired by this little guy? <laughs> this little guy <laughs> like six, 170 pounds or 150 pounds. And just nothing. Could throw him like a football. But back then he was larger than life on stage. But Doyle, that guy's massive. And the whole time I'm he's interviewing big. him, I can't believe this guy's so big. He's just one of those dudes. He's six foot five and he's probably 250 pounds, shredded. He's got abs. He's pushing 60. Super nice guy, just like you say. I mean, you look at these, sometimes you look at these people on stage or they're just their persona, it can be intimidating. But most of the time, I've always found that guys that are the biggest badasses and very good at their craft, they tend to be the coolest guys because they don't need to overcompensate for anything. They don't need to project something that they aren't. They have it. So they have that genuine confidence. Just like people I know that have gone through Navy SEAL training or did 
hardcore operations in other countries during war situations. They're always the nicest people you'll ever meet in person. It's the people yeah. that need to overcompensate that are the ones that try to put on this air of being tough. Yeah, especially with those guys. It's all they rarely even talk about it. Like they don't brag about it. It's like the yeah. person in the room, like you would least expect. And even the guys I'm really good friends with who've done some crazy stuff overseas, it's you'd never know it by just seeing them walk down the street or even in most engagements. Like even when I ask them directly about some crazy stuff they've done, they're like, eh, they're not super comfortable. They'll talk about it, but it's not yeah. kind of part of their identity anymore. Where you meet the crazy person at the bar who's like, I was a Navy SEAL. It's like, <laughs> yeah, unlikely. <laughs> the fact that they're even saying it is unlike. I had a guy, I had a Navy SEAL come to my course one time and we all went out for a group dinner the night before and I introduced him. I'm like, yeah, here's a Navy SEAL. And the second I said that, I saw his facial expression get really uncomfortable. And I was like, oh, I shouldn't have said that. I knew immediately that I shouldn't have introduced him as that. And the next day he came up to me before the course. He's like, please don't introduce me as a Navy SEAL or tell anyone. I was like, yeah, I'm sorry about that. I, it just came out you know, because it was one of those things where I'm like, it's so impressive. You, you, you want yeah. people to know that this guy's background, but that's not why they do it. They're not doing it so that people are like, oh, wow, you're a Navy SEAL. That's so impressive. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much for all your time today. I really appreciate it. And oh, where can people find out more about all your information and your products and everything else? Thank you. Thanks. Really enjoyed talking to you. This is a pleasure. And MikeMahler.com. So it's just my name, M-I-K-E-M-A-H-L-E-R.com. And then links to my Instagram and YouTube and all the content I have is all on there. So I actually have a ton of free content on hormone optimization. So if anyone found this topic of hormone optimization interesting, just check out all the free content I have on my website to get started. Cool. Awesome. Thank you so much for all your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast today. Huge thanks to Mike for his time, sharing all of his knowledge of coming on the podcast. It was a great chat. I followed Mike for, man, long time. I bought one of his kettlebell DVDs back in the day. Ooh, man. The fact that it's a DVD shows you about how long ago it was. At least it wasn't VHS. I do have some stuff on VHS. Not anymore. But so I've been following his stuff for probably 12 to 15 years now. Always a wealth of knowledge. Huge thanks to him for coming on the podcast. Check out all of his information and his products below. No disclosures. I don't make any money off of them, but highly recommend you check them out. And if you want more great information, you can get on to my newsletter. Go to MikeTNelson.com. I send lots of great information there, totally free. And if you have any questions, you can even hit reply, and I'll do the best I can to answer you. If you want to get a hold of me, uh, replying via the newsletter is going to be by far the best way. Because as much as I try to keep up on social media and direct messages, I know a lot of them just fall through the cracks and I don't get back to people sometimes just due to projects and work and other stuff. So go to the newsletter, MikeTNelson.com. If you have a direct question, hit reply. Or if you just want to say hi, that would be awesome too. Again, big thanks to Mike Mahler. And we will listen and talk at you next time on the podcast. That was wonderful. Bravo. I loved that. Oh, it was great. Well, it was pretty good. Well, it wasn't bad. Well, there were parts of it that weren't very good, It though. could have been a lot better. I didn't really like it. It was pretty terrible. It was bad. It was awful. It was terrible. Get him away. Hey, boo. Boo.